Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask some of our writers to read their piece from the magazine Loud. I'm Max Jeffrey. On this week's Christmas special, Peter Hitchens tells us about a Christmas he once spent in Bucharest. Lionel Shriver says that nobody cares about the war in Ukraine anymore. Ed West wonders whether you can meme yourself into believing in God. Mary Wellesley reads her notes on St Nicholas. And Melissa Kite says that it took moving to Ireland to escape from the EU's rules. First up, Peter Hitchens. I never intended to spend Christmas 1989 on a short break in Bucharest. I had enjoyed a long, thrilling autumn in dark, sad cities in Eastern Europe, running and marching with ecstatic crowds as they overthrew communism, but this had all been in the calmer, less exotic regions of the Warsaw Pact, where dumplings were on the menu, passions were equally stodgy, and both rebels and governments would rather hold press conferences than open fire on each other. I was in lovely but dreary Dresden when news came that Nikolai Ceausescu's Baroque dictatorship was tottering, and my foreign desk urged me to head to Hungary and on into Romania as soon as the border opened, if it did. Air travel was impossible. It had to be by land. At Szeged in Hungary, I came to the edge of the known world, gazing across the closed frontier post into the dark, exotic chaos so well described by Olivia Manning in her Balkan trilogy. I knew no Romanian. I knew nobody in Romania. I knew next to nothing about Romania. But the main thing was that I was there. And then the border opened. More crucially, I had the permission of Mrs. Hitchens to cross it. I confess I more than half wished she'd forbidden me to go, but she never stood in the way of any adventure. I crossed into Arad, where I changed the last of my money into a wad of Romanian lei, literally the softest currency I've ever met. The notes were worn from use into limp, porous, purplish rectangles, whose value was hard to make out. And despite a fair amount of Balkan wailing that the Securitatia secret police would come in helicopters and machine-gun me if I did so, I bought a first-class ticket for the Bucharest Express, which was expected on time, and duly turned up. So much for the panic spreaders. As soon as the rusty train heaved itself on its way, I was in the grip of romance, reminded of Kay Harker's journey among bleak hills in the strange low light of December, in that marvellous story, The Box of Delights. Kay looks up at the hills from the train window and thinks, it was a grim winter morning threatening a gale. Something in the light with its hard, sinister clearness gave mystery and dread to those hills. They look just the sort of hills, Kay said to himself, where you might come upon a dark tower and blow a horn at the gate for something to happen. I've always known what he meant. Since my boarding school days, I've loved long train journeys round about Christmas, though I prefer them to be homebound ones, what F. Scott Fitzgerald dutifully describes as the thrilling returning trains of my youth, and the street lamps and sleigh bells in the frosty dark, and the shadows of holly wreaths thrown by lighted windows on the snow. As the short day darkened, I saw shepherds, cloaked and hatted in thick sheepskin, actually watching their flocks. I was, in truth, quite worried, but I decided to take the risk, and there really was not much to do except eat the cheese sandwich I'd bought at the station. I encountered an Australian journalist in a long leather coat who seemed to be an old Romania hand. He was certainly an older Romanian hand than I was. 
he told me which Bucharest hotel to head for and how to get there by underground train. Then he told me it was probably a good idea to run in a zigzag pattern from the tube station to the hotel, as there might be snipers. He may have been having me on. I do not know what happened to him and have never seen him since. I sometimes wonder if he was in fact an apparition or a hallucination. But I duly zigzagged through the falling snow and was not sniped at. Pah! I thought so much for all that whimpering and wailing about the Securitate. It was by now late on Christmas Eve. My office would be empty, as Fleet Street does not publish on Christmas Day. Embarking on my first major bribe, I gave the hotel switchboard supervisor a large carton of Kent cigarettes, the country's real currency, and asked for a call to my Oxford home. Go to your room and wait, they said, as they always did in such places in those days. I went to my room and waited. I began to tap out some sort of story that might be usable on Boxing Day when what seemed at first to be a firework display began on the street outside. It was not a firework display. It was machine gun fire, much of it very obviously tracer bullets whizzing past my window. I am no hero. I did not fancy having my obituary in the 26th of December 1989 issue of the Daily Express with my name probably misspelled and an unflattering blurred picture beneath the headline, Express Man Dies in Romania. So I switched off all the lights, pulled the curtains tight, shoved the heavier furniture towards the window, and slid under the bed. I was slender enough to do this in those days. There were lulls, but the gunnery continued off and on. During one of the breaks, the telephone shuddered, rattled, and tinkled. I pulled the receiver under the bed with me and answered. Mrs Hitchens was on the line. She'd finished hanging up the children's stockings and leaving out the carrots and wine for Father Christmas and his reindeer. The tree was all done. I was glad to hear it, though at that point these sweet things felt as far away and as unreachable as the moon. How is Bucharest? she wished to know. Oh, quiet, I replied. Nothing much to see. Whereupon the Kalashnikovs and the big heavy machine guns started up again, so unmistakably that I had to stop lying to her. Perhaps anxious that my possibly fatal trip should not pass unrecorded, she urged me there and then to dictate a report to her, which she would pass on to the foreign desk. And through the noise of gunfire, I began, This is the real-life country, where it is always winter and never Christmas. And from then on, it all flowed quite smoothly. The next few days passed in a succession of horrors and fret. Christmas Day was worse than most days, the desperate, stinking hospital wards full of wounded people, the judicial murder of Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu, their gory corpses displayed on TV, the visit to their office during which I looted Elena's red document holder, which I still possess, from her desk. And then the day of release when a colleague miraculously arrived to take my place. There were still no flights, so I went back to the great dingy north station just in time to see an immensely long train painted the colour of pickled cucumber, the favourite shade of the communist world, began to move. Not caring where it was going, as long as it was not going to Romania, I flung my bags aboard and leapt after them. As it happened, it was carrying an entire Soviet orchestra to Sofia in Bulgaria. I will never forget their kindness to me, making space for me to sit, sharing their vodka, their black bread and their sausage, as the train wound through the blue mountains of the Bulgarian border country in the twilight, and then down into Sofia, which, after all my adventures, felt like Paris. So much for short breaks in Bucharest. We had our proper Christmas late that year, and it would not be the last time that would happen. That was Peter Hitchens, and now Lionel Shriver. Apologies for this seasonal downer. 
Had the website such a listing, this column would surely soar to number one in the spectator's least popular roster. For just now, few topics are a bigger turnoff than Ukraine. Following Russia's invasion, I got caught up in the same waves of emotion that washed over most Western publics. And I say that with no regret. After relentlessly battling the prevailing cultural winds these past few years, I was relieved to feel a sense of solidarity for once. Most of us were revulsed by the gratuitous aggression, allied with an underdog whose bite proved surprisingly fierce. Thrilled by a former comedian's unexpected rise to his nation's occasion, and consumed by a weirdly addictive loathing for Vladimir Putin. Kiev's repelling Russia's clumsy invasion of the capital was exhilarating. Like so many of you, in those early months, I read about Ukraine every day. I don't anymore. I bet most of you don't either. Why, as grotesque as October 7th was, I sensed in our collective pivot to the Middle East this autumn an odd undercurrent of gladness that now we could plunge up to the neck into a different story. Ukraine suddenly seemed yesterday's news, background news. But for Ukrainians, their war is still roiling very much in the present and is being conducted anywhere but in the background. I'm no foreign policy wonk, but I do know something about stories. And observers of international news constitute an audience, a readership. From the off, this story had a spectacular opening chapter, a classic hero, personified by Volodymyr Zelensky, but more crucially, the Ukrainian people. And as wicked a villain as Shakespeare could have contrived. To begin with, too, our tale was punctuated by riveting dramatic events. The outrageous slaughter of civilians in Bucha. The triumphant sinking in the Black Sea of Russia's grand warship, the Moskva. The gratifying liberation of Kharkiv, as the once intimidating Russian army beat a humiliating retreat. The sly and, for Putin, infuriating bombing of his fancy bridge to Crimea. But if we fast forward, Ukraine's counteroffensive last summer was a damp squib. For months on end, every centimeter of liberated territory has been gained through huge loss of life and munitions. The Russians are dug in, their confiscated eastern regions heavily fortified. The battle lines having barely moved for months, the conflict's visuals now recollect the meat-grinding Western Front of the First World War. Our plot has stalled. This is the middle bit of a novel, where if nothing appreciable happens for long enough, the reader is apt to put the book down. For us observers, this is supposed to be a David and Goliath story. But David and Goliath is a crap story if the giant wins. The big bloke pummels the little bloke. Predictable, a bit disheartening, and not really a story at all, just the way the world works. Besides, a Western audience wants to see the good guy win, both to mete out justice 
and to enjoy victory by proxy. Sophisticated literature often resolves with more complexity, with bitterness, irony, or tragedy. But that's one reason literary fiction is less popular than the commercial kind. Most people prefer happy endings. Any best-selling thriller writer would subject the Ukrainians to plenty of nail-biting adversity, but Zelensky would finally triumph, reclaiming all his nation's occupied territory, including Crimea. Ukraine's anguishing self-defense is not a novel. But we are quietly losing interest in this conflict, I include myself, because it's not satisfying our fictional appetites. Recall that about a year ago, I worried here that our narrative expectations of this war may be taking us into the realm of fantasy. I observed glumly that the war's probable resolution is an ugly moral compromise that sacrifices a goodly chunk of a sovereign nation to a monomaniacal bully, who will doubtless spin Ukrainian concessions as a dazzling military success, one that redeems for the Russian people his unprovoked aggression, and the many deaths of their sons, brothers, and fathers. This endgame is more likely than ever. I'm not happy about that. In fact, it makes me sick. But the average age of the Ukrainian army is now 43, a statistic that makes me even sicker. They're running out of young men, not because the young men won't serve, but because they're dead. Ukrainian women are now being sent to the front lines. Russia had nearly four times the population of Ukraine before the war. Given the reduced population in Kiev-controlled areas, the countries are now mismatched in manpower by a factor of five. With his legacy and political future on the line, Putin is clearly all in for the long haul. The easily manipulated Russian public have not rebelled. Putin's inner sanctum hasn't staged a coup. Russian GDP has increased since last year. The ruble has started rising against the dollar. Western sanctions have failed. I don't share the view of many U.S. Republicans that Ukraine should be thrown under a bus because the country is none of our business and America should spend taxpayers' money on solutions to its own problems. But just because the conflict's resolution has major geopolitical ramifications doesn't mean we can write our own happy ending. No matter how much ordnance the U.S. and NATO ship to Zelensky, we're not providing the soldiers obliged to wield it. I say this with a heavy heart. If the writing is on the wall... If a negotiated settlement that cedes captured territory to Putin looks inevitable, maybe it's time to urge the Zelensky government to enter talks to bring this depressing war to its depressing conclusion. Dragging out an entrenched stalemate merely racks up a higher body count and destroys more Ukrainian homes and infrastructure to no purpose. Sitting back and giving Ukrainians just enough weaponry to keep fighting to the last man and woman, only for the country to finally end up where we always knew it would, is not just immoral. It's murder. That was Lionel Shriver. And now, Ed West 
One of Professor Richard Dawkins' most influential ideas was the concept of the meme, which he coined in The Selfish Gene. A meme is an idea or form of behaviour that spreads by imitation from person to person. Memes can be beneficial or harmful to the individual and the wider community, the most successful of some great psychological appeal. Memes are a form of contagion, and with 21st century technology, the power of that contagion has grown. Yet people are not merely passive recipients of ideas. Indeed, one aspect of human psychology clearly visible on social media is the willingness of people to meme themselves into belief. Being around the community who express the same beliefs, repeating mantras and declarations of faith, regarding non-believers as a threat in order to solidify group cohesion. Yes, you can fake it until you make it. All this might provide some thought for church leaders as they contemplate the still-falling numbers of people who identify as Christian, and perhaps wonder, can Christianity meme itself back into relevance? Can people not blessed with faith talk themselves into it? Religion comes in degrees, often differentiated by identification, practice and belief. Many who identify as Christian don't practice, and many who practice don't believe, including some clergymen. But putting your foot on the first step hugely increases the probability of reaching the second. It is the same with all beliefs. Perhaps the most obvious example of meme belief is transgenderism, the very recent idea that people are born in the wrong body and can somehow change sex. Many men have memed themselves into believing they are women, in part because where once it would have been regarded as a fetish, it is now seen as a sacred identity. The idea is strengthened by the mimetic support of a community and the threat of punishment to people who pose it. Just last month in Brighton, a talk held by the sceptics had to be cancelled because of objections by trans activists to one of the speakers, who was sceptical of some of their claims. The sceptics were part of the new atheist movement of the 2000s. If ever an idea was pushing at an open door, it was new atheism, in which Professor Dawkins was a leading figure. Framed as opposition to religion in public affairs, it gathered much of its energy from fear of Islam following 9-11, although it was impolite to make that explicit. In some senses, new atheism was hugely successful. The United States, once seen as bucking the trend of Western secularisation, has been rapidly losing its faith so far this century. Today, Americans under 40 are the first generation to have a Christian minority. New atheists got what they asked for, but as with so many revolutionaries of the past, they are despairing of the results. The atomizing effect of secularism has become extreme. While America's poor fill their God-shaped hole with drugs and alcohol, Its rich did so with politics. Rather than ushering in a golden age of enlightenment, the collapse of American Christianity gave rise to a new intolerance towards anybody who diverged from progressive opinion. Yet this period has also coincided with the proliferation of social science studies pointing to the benefits of religion, both belief and practice, on child welfare, social capital, individual happiness and, most of all, suppression of anxiety, the cause of that modern-day mental health epidemic. As religious belief plummeted in the West, so a new intellectual movement sprang up in the 2010s. Like new atheism, it largely involved unbelievers and argued for the same Western liberal tradition. Their argument is not that religion is true, but that it is useful, and that Christianity has made the West unusually successful. It is not a revolutionary idea. As far back as the 18th century, sceptical philosophers accepted that humans were by nature religious. But the new theists, as you might call them, have social sciences to back them up. One of the earliest proponents was, like the leading new atheist Steven Pinker, an evolutionary psychologist. In his 2011 book The Righteous Minds, Jonathan Haidt argued that religion has a powerful role in promoting social cohesion. 
Following the line of David Hume, Haidt argued that humans are essentially irrational, and the increasingly shrill political ideology of his countrymen on both left and right comes from the same part of the brain as religion. Contrary to Christopher Hitchens' catchy line that religion poisons everything, the demonstrable reality is that it is the glue that binds a species of ape together, what Ibn Khaldun referred to as fictive kinship. Perhaps the most influential of the new theists is the historian Tom Holland, whose hugely popular book Dominion drew on a tradition going back to 19th century French historians by arguing that liberalism and individualism were not 18th century actions to Christianity, but its products. The new atheist icon, Ayen Hersi Ali, cited Holland in a recent declaration of the Christian faith, which sparked a great debate or controversy, not because she had adopted irrational beliefs, but because of the almost calculating reasons for which she said she was embracing religion. Arguing that Western civilization is under threat from Putinism, the rise of radical Islam and the viral spread of woke ideology which is eating into the moral fibre of the next generation, Hersi Ali wrote that an atheistic West lacks the tools to fight. The only credible answer, she said, I believe lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. A community of belief, in other words, Indeed, the very word religio is Latin for to bind. It's why Christianity can never really be a private matter, and nor can its secular offshoots. All religions stem from community and depend on mimetic support, and with enough of that support, most people can probably mean themselves into it. The issue is not whether the social benefits of Christianity are real, but whether these can be won without genuine belief, or whether it's even right to fake it until you make it. If millions of people were to return to church going, whatever they felt inside there would almost certainly be enormous social benefits. At the very least, the act of being involved in the community and ingesting a message of forgiveness would act as social valium. Would some people then go on to develop genuine religious belief? Probably. But Christianity is not some meditation method or get-happy-quick guide. It is a deeply strange idea, which makes its triumph over the West all the more unlikely, dare one say, miraculous. That was Ed West. And now, Mary Wellesley. For a heartwarming Christmas tale, look no further than the medieval legend of St Nicholas, a story of sex trafficking, cannibalism and murder. The historical Nicholas is a hazy figure whose scant biography was embroidered in the Middle Ages. The 12th century Norman poet Was wrote a colourful account of his life. It opens with the story that has informed the modern Santa Claus. Nicholas, we are told, took pity on a man who had once been wealthy but had fallen into poverty. The man had three daughters. Things were desperate. The man concluded that the girls had to be sold into sexual slavery. Nicholas visited the man's house on three consecutive nights, and each night threw gold in through an open window. Some of the other stories in Wass's poem are decidedly more macabre. Many involve the miraculous resurrection of children murdered or accidentally killed. One such is the Miracle of the Boiled Infant, in which a mother is so overjoyed at the news that Nicholas has been selected as the bishop that she rushes to church to hear Mass, leaving her baby in an earthen tub over a burning fire. When the service is over, she suddenly remembers her mistake and rushes home to find the baby unharmed and happily playing with the bubbles in the boiling water. In another story, a man on pilgrimage to St Nicholas is murdered and dismembered by an innkeeper and thrown into vats of salted meat. 
The man miraculously wakes the next morning and greets the innkeeper, who responds, Good fellow, I killed you, shattered your bones and salted your flesh. Saint Nicholas, to whom you are going, is very powerful and full of succour. English versions of this miracle story are even more grisly. In the late medieval South English legendary, the pilgrim becomes three clerks. There, a butcher offers lodging to three clerks, for which read students, before murdering them in the hope of stealing their money. On discovering the clerks are broke, his wife recommends dismembering their bodies, grinding up their flesh and salting it for use in pies. Later, St Nicholas appears as the couple are selling their pastries. The clerks miraculously come back to life. The butcher and his wife are moved to contrition. There are several things that are weird about this story, but probably no more weird than the story of a man travelling the world on a reindeer conveyance and sneaking into the bedrooms of sleeping children. Modern Christmas traditions involve the whole-scale deception of children. Our medieval counterparts, by contrast, saw the Feast of St Nicholas as a moment to surrender power to them. In many English cathedrals, abbeys, churches and schools, the feast, the 6th of December, was the beginning of a boy bishop's term of office. In an atmosphere of misrule that seems to pervade when the days are short and the nights long, a young choir boy would be appointed bishop until Holy Innocence Day, the 28th of December. During his tenure, he would dress in robes, preside at services, preach a sermon and lead a procession through the streets during which a collection would be taken. The practice, like so many mad and wonderful traditions, was outlawed by Henry VIII. That was Mary Wellesley and finally Melissa Kite. The skip man laughed as he took pity on me, the daft English blow-in who was taking the EU rules on rubbish disposal literally. You put so much concrete in that skip that if I weighed it in properly, it would cost you a thousand euros, he said. I told him I really didn't mind paying the going rate. He said he wouldn't hear of it. If you've got land, you can always get rid of concrete blocks by filling holes with them, he said. Don't be putting concrete into skips. The builder boyfriend, hard at work clearing the farmyard and barns, was aghast as I trotted outside to tell him his rookie mistake. I don't want to flight at my own land, he said, making a pile of old lino he'd removed from a back room before demanding I order another skip. It's disorientating to have re-entered the EU to escape from its rules, but I'm delighted and not entirely surprised to find that the Irish stick their middle fingers up to most of the red tape from Brussels. We lit a bonfire in our farmyard shortly after we got here and when someone called it in, the builder boyfriend was flagged down by a council official not to be issued with a fine, but for the official to tell him how disgusted he was that a neighbour should do this to us. The pair of them stood by the roadside discussing who it could have been. Most likely, the official thought, it was someone with a grudge against the council trying to give him extra work by making him come up to the house to inspect our fire. As long as we assured him we would order a skip, he would say and do no more about it. So we ordered a skip, and the skip company boss was appalled that we put lots of stuff in it. We could have flight it. I've received a very polite complaint letter from a, re from a reader questioning how I, a Brexiteer, could possibly dare to go and live in the EU after everything I've complained about. 
but he only thinks my move is hypocrisy because he's bought into the idea that Europe is an institution, not a geographical place. Long before the EU was unsuccessfully telling people how to dispose of their rubbish in West Cork, my forefathers were humping grapes off a mountainside in Abruzzo. Thank you very much. The builder boyfriend hails on one side from the Channel Islands and on the other side from Naples. Despite being ardent Brexiteers, we've both travelled extensively, both in Europe and the wider world. Shocking, I know. So far as I can make out, the Irish, like the French and the Italians, are only mad keen on the European Union in the sense that it provides them with farming subsidies and free tractors. When it comes to its rules, their view seems to be that you can take them or leave them, depending on what's in it for you. Our neighbours keep telling us about the grants we could apply for to do up this old house. Everyone puts in for these grants. We often joke that the reason we can't get any tradespeople like plumbers or electricians to turn up is because it's a full-time job sitting at home filling in the grant application forms. You have to fit your trade around it. Nothing is for free, I told the BB. I don't want to have to feel grateful to the EU. They're not bribing me. A Eurosceptic friend of mine pointed out that another way to square my move, politically speaking, is that one day I can vote for Irexit. I would have said this was completely unlikely before moving here. Now I'm not so sure. There is growing anger aimed at an establishment that has started labelling anyone who complains about anything as far right. This hackneyed insult becomes finally and totally meaningless once you start applying it to the Irish, for obvious reasons. When Leo Varadkar threatens to use water cannon on Dubliners for rioting after three children are stabbed in the street, you think, what next? Rubber bullets? Black and tan uniforms for the police? Truly, the indiscriminate misuse of the term far-right has plumbed new depths. Now they're slapping it on people whose ancestors starved in the potato famine or fought alongside Michael Collins. So yes... I look forward to joining this lot if they ever mount a second go at independence. That's it for Spectator Out Loud this year. Thank you very much for listening. Wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.